Well, good morning. It's good to sing of the greatness of God this morning. It's good to lift our voices together as one people in the house of God this morning. Amen. Yeah, it's good to have you all out. Uh, My name is Pastor Eric. I'm the lead pastor here at Common Ground Northeast, and I just want to say welcome to those of you who are joining us in person, who are grabbing um, the the feed online. We're glad that you're here. We're glad that you're tuning in. We're glad that you're a part of what God is doing here inside of our church. Um, Before uh, we get to the sermon today, we have kind of a special moment of acknowledgement that we're going to do today, uh, which is a little bit new for our church, uh, so let me give you a reason why. Um, over the last few months, you've heard me say here and there, either in um, like the family meeting and uh, just here on Sunday morning, that we've had a lot of people come and check out our church recently. And we've had a lot of people um, in the midst of that who are still trying to figure out what they want to do. Is this the right place for them? But in the midst of that, a lot of people also have said, this is our church home. We want to make this the place um, that is uh, where we're committed to be. So it's this mixture of people who've been looking for a church, either at the beginning of the pandemic, during the pandemic, or at this point, kind of as things are starting to loosen up and checking things out in person. Many people have been watching online and have come to check it out as a result of that. Um, also, people, uh, congregants from the Healing Place, Pastor Ken's uh, church, are, are also in the midst of kind of deciding if this is going to be the right move for them. And as a result, we've had about 15 households. Did you hear me? 15 households decide that they wanted to be a part of Common Ground Northeast. Now, I've been kind of tracking them, and some of those are, are you know, it's a, a one person, uh, and some of those are families, and uh, one of those families represents three households, and I just counted them as one. Um, so... Uh, but in the midst of that, um, what we want to do is, uh, as they make their movement towards calling Common Ground Northeast their home church, um, if you've been around uh, for a while, you know that we don't have a formal kind of membership. We traditionally don't ask for anything beyond just your committed presence, and we, we've kind of tried to give some handles to that a little bit along the way with the go, give, grow, uh, sorry, gather, grow, give, go paradigm in the midst, and you'll see that repeated here today. But what we also have recognized is that for some of the new people who have maybe inched their way in or are checking things out or come from a different tradition, they're like, I don't, I don't, am I actually here? Is this my church? Are we, is this real? Like, am I, am I here? And so kind of meeting in the middle there, what we wanted to do um, is, uh, is try to figure out a way to acknowledge publicly some of the new people. And then for those of you who are still online, to be able to see and know um, some of the new faces that have been here. So we're going to recognize some of the newest congregants here today. Uh, know that uh, the online attendance and kind of the scattered nature of what's been going on has kind of caused us also, too, to be in some ways two different groups. I, I saw a be- I'll call it a beautifully awkward moment where somebody who helped plant this church uh, had been, you know, because of the pandemic here and there and not quite, um, you know, as consistent on Sunday morning, they show up and someone else who's new has started coming and has, you know, a high degree of ownership came up to them and said, hey, are you new? <laughs> I'm like, oh, I was watching it up here from a meet and greet and I just kind of like, okay, I'm going to step out of that situation. Uh, but, but what's beautiful about that is like there is this newness to us and there is a history and depth of the person who has been coming and helped plant this church. There's a, there's a heritage and a legacy that they have planted here, but also there's something powerful about these new people coming in and grabbing ownership and saying, I'm going to take on this ministry. I'll jump in where you need me. So today we're going to take some time and just recognize um, and celebrate some of our new congregants who have decided to call this place um, Common Ground. Now, again, because of the pandemic, we can't have people come up um, and we wouldn't 
to fit inside of the kind of the field of vision for the camera. So what we've asked is um, for some of those people to give us pictures. Now, this is not all of the 15 households. Um, we're actually going to have to recognize even more people next month. Um, but I'm going to br- read the names of those who are able to get us pictures. There's still a few others, again, that, that are like, hey, I'll catch you on the next one. Don't worry about that. Um, at some point, though, if you are one of the people who are being recognized today, at the end of this, we will do um, a meet and greet, and I'll dismiss the kids, uh, and I'll just have you stand up briefly um, so we can celebrate you and give it, uh, people a chance maybe just to say hey during the meet and greet. Um, all right, so we'll put those pictures up on the board. These are some of our newest uh, committed people here. Becky and Billy Brandel. All right. Yeah, we can do this. <laughs> Janet and Eric Johnson. You're kind of like the OGs of the new people. I don't know where you're at, but if that makes sense, like Geneva Black, I think I saw you come in. Yeah. Gerald Rush. This is Pastor Ken's brother. Yeah. Greg Allison and Jack Coley. If they're here or not. <laughs> Thumbs up. All right. Janet and Tim Brown. Yeah. Come to this side. Jeb and Ann Gaither. The Jones family. (laughs) We got names and everything. We got a smirk at Tessa right there. I like it. Uh, The McElroy family. Yeah. I think... Uh, and one more, Wade Vanderson. Thank you. See him out here. Well, amen. And there's a, again, I said there's a few more that are going to be coming. We'll probably do this uh, uh, every month or so for a while as um, as we do it. Um, as as we welcome them, I have a couple of things. I'm going to have Pastor Ken. If you you can even just come on up right now, he's going to pray over us as we close out um, this section. Um, But I just want to say, you know, over the last few months, these folks have found a home at Common Ground Northeast, and through prayer discernment, they've listened to God's voice, calling them to participate in the life of our congregation to take on the convictions we hold. And our vision statement, go ahead and step in here, like right about here. Yeah, they can't see you online. There you go. Perfect. You can dance. You might, right? Like, don't don't tempt you. All right. The vision statement, I just want to say, is here at Common Ground, I'm going to step back here just so I know, keep an eye Uh, Invite all people, regardless of age, ethnicity, and background, to be formed into the image of Jesus in order that we might love our neighbors here in Indianapolis and around the world. And so to you who are the new people here, we seek uh, to come into our congregation to deepen your relationship with us and your commitment with our church community. I just want to say, welcome into the family. It's good to have you. As you affirm your faith in God as your creator, as Christ as your savior, and as the Holy Spirit as your guide, we want to come alongside you. And I want to say these things, just a a brief kind of statement of commitment um, that we want to ask of you. Will you follow in the way of Jesus to resist oppression and evil, to show mercy and justice, to be a witness to the reconciling ministry by living out the loving message of Jesus Christ as best as you are able? Will you commit to gather with us, grow with us, give of your time, talent, and treasures to the community and go as ambassadors on mission with the community of God's believers at Common Ground Northeast? And if you would like to agree to that, just say, with God's help, we will. With God's help, we will.
Amen. And then to the existing congregation, those who have maybe been here for a while, as you receive these into our fold, into our community, do you commit to become a church that can, be, uh, that can depend on each other through good times and through hard times? Do you promise to partner with our new congregants, help them to find their place in the body of Christ here at, uh, at, Co- at Common Ground Northeast, to pray with and for them, to extend the right hand of fellowship to them, welcoming them in in holy friendship, to be their church, their people, to encourage them as they gather, grow, give, and go with us as we all seek to be formed into the image of Jesus. And if you agree with that today, just say, with God's help, we will. With God's help. Mm. Amen. Well, just this one encouragement, and then Pastor Ken will pray for us. Let us joyfully share in each other's hopes and labors of the kingdom. May we be for each other. May we love each other, laugh together, and share in the company of fellowship of believers together. May we be courageous together. May we empower each other and others together. May we seek the kingdom together. May we be common ground together. And may we do it all in the name of Jesus Christ who makes us one. Amen. God for this moment and thank God for Common Ground Northeast. Thank you for being the church that Lori and I and so many others can come to and find refuge and call this place our home. Certainly not this building but we joined you who you are and thank God for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this church. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this season and we thank you for everyone's journey that supernaturally placed us in this place at this time. It is no accident that we are here. And God, it is so important that while we are here, we do the work that continually attracts and invites others Mm -hmm. of your people who are hurting, your people who are broken. May what we do and may who we are and who you are making us, God, invite them into this presence and may they find healing and strength and may they find space and room and place and opportunity to grow and to show what you have made them also make us what you have called us to be we thank you that it is new but more than anything we thank you that it truly reflects you thank you jesus come on everybody thank you jesus Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen and amen. Come on, let's give the Lord a hand. Amen. Just give him a round of applause. We're so glad that you're here. If we called your name, well, actually, let me, let me dismiss kids. Let's get them moving on their way. For those who have children's classrooms today, go ahead and be dismissed. And as we go into our meet and greet, if I called your name, would you, would you just stand really quickly with us right now, just so people can see where you're at inside of the congregation? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, yes. Great. Great. Oh, oh, stay standing. I got you. Um, amen. As you see them here today, would you just find at some point today just a chance? I know if you're introverted, you're like, do not do this to me, please. But just real quick, one Sunday only, just grab, grab a quick moment just to say welcome to them during this time as we move into our meet and greet. Go ahead and stand. And as a celebration in true common ground form, say hello, welcome each other, and it is Donut Sunday. Do it quickly. Don't make those people online wait for us too long.
Amen, amen. Well, go ahead and let's, let's go ahead and start closing up our conversations. If you can grab a donut and have a seat, and I'll start the sermon here in just a few minutes. In a minute. All right. All right, y'all. Good morning. Let's go ahead and try and make our way back to our seats. I know I still got people picking out donuts. One thing I wanted to say that I forgot just a minute ago is if you are newer and you feel like, hey, I think I, think I should be recognized in this and just noticing that, that you know, maybe you're newer and you haven't gone through that process, um, we had to at some point just kind of draw a line and say as far back as wherever we decided, which ended up being kind of, well, a little further actually now that, now that I think about it than last summer. But the main bulk of people started coming at the beginning of the summer last year, and then we've had a consistent flow. But if you're here and we did not get an email out to you or just kind of a reminder, and you would like to be a part of next month's recognition for new people here, um, uh, committed members calling this your church home, please reach out to us. You can just email us at office at cgnortheast.com, and uh, we'll do that. All right. Um, well, good morning, everyone. Uh, as you find your seats, um, over the last month, we have been celebrating and acknowledging Black History Month through a series called Righteous Resistance. And it, I, I, I like it, for me, it was just like a spectacular moment in the life of our church because we were able to really celebrate, cause some, uh, some, uh, uh, a little bit of movement, I think, and some noise on behalf of Black History Month as well. The last two weeks, in my opinion, were especially powerful. If you didn't get a chance to listen to either of them, I want to encourage you with everything I have. I got a chance to listen to Pastor Ken's sermon. And if you have heard me say this phrase, that this move is, is like stepping into prophecy, sometimes I want to qualify that at times. And what I mean is there are times that there are things that we prayed for, things that God told us, and we see the fulfillment of those things through this moment um, as Ken and and the Healing Place have jumped in with what's going on here, uh, and as we've partnered together as ministries, and he told one of those moments um, inside of that. So if you haven't gotten a chance, I was excited, getting hyped up while I was listening to his sermon. Go back and listen to it. And then last week, Pastor Johnson Bevins, a guest from Citadel of Faith, Church of God in Christ, just delivered an incredible message. Um, like I said, please go back and check those two out as they, he ended our um, time together in Black History Month uh, with just a powerful message, um, end capping kind of that section of what we're doing. Well, during our series, what we did was we tried to look in the scripture for moments of righteous resistance that we see in the faith history of God's people. And then in, during Black History Month, we wanted to find powerful moments in black history where there was an example of righteous resistance so that we could then see and use this as an example and then come back to ourselves and ask this important question, where in our culture should we engage in righteous resistance today? 
And so we kind of use that format over and over over the last four weeks. Well, as the pastoral staff has just come together, we have this preaching collective where we have conversations over all of them just to get different experiences and perspectives and um, you know, commentaries depending on who's reading what. We have this conversation. We just felt like this topic, we wanted to continue the motif a little bit with, with a little bit of a twist added on to it. And so what we're going to do is continue righteous resistance as a series, even all through Easter, until we see Jesus as a righteous resistor. And there's some key moments that we're going to point out in that moment. But we also wanted to say, okay, okay, what traits or disciplines in the faith history of the Christian tradition can we look at and then embrace as tools or weapons in the arsenal of our biblical practice today? What are the things about them that made them recognize this is when I should resist? This is where righteousness exists. This is how I should do it. And there's some practices that I think you can kind of pull out of that. And so what I mean by this is disciplines that we, we can hold on to or tools that we can grab for counterformation in a uh, 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 the context of America to resist the formation machine that is our culture. All right, I don't think culture is bad, but there is a way in which it is constantly forming us into something. And if you are not using the scriptures as counter formation of your life, then you just become whatever the flow of that stream is going to point you towards. Um, they're not always, this is something I want us to start out with understanding. Resistance does not always look like what you think. Right, sometimes righteous resistance is having a tight grip on hope in the midst of despair. Sometimes righteous resistance is holding on to joy in the darkest times of your life. It's holding faith in the midst of doubts and saying, I'm not going to let go of this. And instead of anger or direct persecution, you will find that some of these other things, hope, love, joy, peace, lament, as we will talk about today, can become an even more powerful tool than forceful opposition. It's so disarming at times the potential, uh, sorry, they can be disarming at times and have the potential to transform the hearts of even the aggressor in that situation. And I'm going to give you some examples of that today. Um, One one way it plays out just kind of uh, uh, in a very light way on a regular basis is you know that time um, when a kid in the family does something wrong or maybe they've acted irresponsibly and they know it, they know the punishment's coming, it's like I'm going to get yelled at or I'm going to have something taken. Or there's going to be, you know, I'm going to get grounded for a couple of weeks. But the parent in that situation shifts the tone in which they speak and they say this well worn phrase. And you'll see it up here I'm not angry, I'm just what? Disappointed. Maybe you've heard it before. <laughs> so I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed. Now, their response instead of anger, instead of some sort of atoning punishment, is like a form of sadness. It's a type of, if it works, and it doesn't always, but if it works, this is more effective than anger because it stabs at your heart like an icicle. And if you're the recipient, you're like, no, just give me a punishment, like yell at me so I can be done with this situation. And it hurts sometimes even deeper. I wanted to look into, I just kind of did a quick Google search, Psychology Today, it was a little bit older, like 2016 article, put this, um, it was an article about this this idea and what happens. It says, the dreaded words, I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed, can wound us more deeply than many more heated reports, or sorry, retorts. While they assure us of a chilly calm, they do not offer the relief of forgiveness, nor the reassurance of discovering the event didn't really matter. And that's because the event did really matter. 
And you become so invested maybe in this person or the situation that they could have done better or that you expected more out of them that you couldn't think of anything else but them doing this and all of a sudden they didn't do it. It's the opposite and instead of becoming angry, you're just disappointed. A kind of sadness comes over you and so it becomes more lament than anger and it communicates that the original offense was incredibly painful. That it was so heavy it can't just be remedied by a simple I'm sorry or punishment or forgiveness. It's, it's, in, it's embedded in the situation and it leaves it unsettled. Something more has to be done to reconcile this matter. And you think about it from both sides of the coin, right? The person who says something, the one who's kind of in the authority position, and the person who's the recipient. For the recipient, disappointment hits different because it feels personal. It pulls at your heart, whereas a simple grounding can just be endured. A a quick punishment can be done. Or I can even say, I'm sorry. Like, have you done that with your kids? Like, you got to say sorry. I'm sorry. Well, you know you didn't mean that, right? There was no intent to mean that. It's just trying to get it out there as quick as possible. But this moves in a different way. The disappointment means you really, really messed up. But then for the person in authority, maybe the parent, it's a powerful way to deal with an offense, a tool that should not be overused but only in its proper context because the situation demands something different. But it is a legitimate correction option. It's something that you can use in a context. And you think there's also risk involved, right? Because it may not work. You might go through that situation, be genuinely hurt and say, man, I'm so disappointed. And they look at you stone cold and say, okay, with a shoulder shrug and a moving on with their day. And you don't know whether it's sunk in or not. I think this is a great example of biblical lament. Grief and tears are sometimes more critical, more effective of a righteous resistance than direct opposition, at least to move people's hearts. And I want you to open up your Bibles this morning to a psalm of lament, Psalm 79. If you have your your, your Bible with you, go ahead and open that up right now. Of course, we'll have it on the screen too, Psalm 79. This is a song written as a reply and a critique of the evil events that took place against Israel, against God's people. They They have undertook a brutal defeat, like this invasion comes in, sweeps them. It's violent. It was, it was an intense and quick defeat. They're being held captive now by the Babylonian Empire, and this song is written to express communal and national distress and disappointment in the situation. So the lament is directed to God, and it says this, Psalm 79. O oh God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have reduced Jerusalem to rubble. They have left the dead bodies of your servants as food for the birds of the sky and flesh of your own people for the animals of the wild. Now listen to this one. They have poured out blood like water all around Jerusalem. I'm going to explain that in a little bit. And there is no one to bury the dead. We are objects of contempt to our neighbors, a scorn of derision to those around us. Now, the destruction is deep. The destruction is personal. It's thorough. Like, no stone is left unturned. It's not like they took a quick shot to the chin and kind of shook it off and got back in the game. It's a desolation to the extent that they feel completely and utterly defeated. And these words paint a striking picture. 
They focus on the temple, the structures, right? First, then they move on to the death of the people, the defilement of the ground. Now, it's one thing to know that there is bloodshed in your land. It's another thing to know that in your religious practice, blood on the ground means the land is defiled. It's insult to injury. They make, it makes their holy land unclean. Even common respect of being allowing fallen enemies to go in and bury their dead was being denied to them. In Asaph, the psalm writers, then he recounts all of these events, tells them back to God, and then says that we are being mocked. Our own name is a mockery against us by the enemies of Israel. That's an incredibly dark moment in the history of God's people. They're pouring out their grief to God. Have you been, now listen, have you been in desolation before? Now, maybe not to the extent that we're talking here, because I think very few people have, not nobody, but few have felt this. But have you been in a sense of desolation where you felt utterly defeated in the circumstance of whatever it is that you were going through And you could kind of identify with the level, with the power, with the anger, with the emotion that's going on in this. Perhaps you, in that moment, were told, but but like, keep it together. I mean, you can't go, you can't say that to God. You can't bring these things to God himself. But that's not what the psalmist does. He takes it directly to God. The psalmist digs in even more. He questions God. Verse 5 says this, how long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? How long will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not acknowledge you and on the kingdoms that do not call on your name. That seems a little harsh, doesn't it? Like, whoa, Asaph, hold up, bro. Calm down. For they have devoured Jacob and devastated this homeland. That seems like incredibly harsh language from our vantage point, right? Is it even biblical to say some of those things? I guess so. What it is is a visceral response to the devastation that he is feeling in this moment. As Asaph begs God to do something, he lays this petition before the feet of God right in front of him. Take action. Destroy my enemies. But, but like, aren't we supposed to forgive? We're Christians. Asaph, come on, man. Like, Act more mature, please. Aren't you supposed to turn the other cheek? Yeah. But sometimes that's not the honest truth about the way we actually feel in a given situation. And sometimes impassioned cries with the strongest possible rhetoric are necessary to gain the attention of those with power to do something, even God at times. And so to stifle, to be at our vantage point and to look at him and to say, hold, like, calm down a little bit. Uh, could you just chill out? Sti- to stifle, to suppress, to create a sense of, of lament that is encapsulated, clean, not dirty, not ragged, not raw, is a more reasonable response, Asaph. Could be just a denial of the pain itself. It renders their critique useless, the situation in their hands powerless to move those who need to be moved. And so the psalmist gives us today at least this, permission to have visceral, passionate responses to our situation and to take them before God. And to ask God to move on behalf of our circumstances. Now this next section takes a little bit of a shift, but he's even going to come back a little bit. Verse 8 
it says this, do not hold against us the sins of past generations. May your mercy come quickly to meet us, for we are in desperate need. Help us, God, our Savior, for the glory of your name, deliver us and forgive us your sins for your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Before our eyes make known among the nations that you avenge the outpoured blood of your servants. Now, once again, you can almost be like, man, I don't, I don't know. Is that allowed? Is that, is that a prayer I'm allowed to pray? And there's this heart check at the beginning, right, where the psalmist says, God, if we, I like how passing it is. We tend to do that, right? Like, if me or anyone else has done anything wrong, God, forgive us. But those guys... Bring down your wrath upon them. And he does the heart check a little bit just to make sure, like, I've repented for the things that I've done. But then he appeals to God based on God's own repetition, or sorry, reputation. And he looks up at God and he says, look, everyone knows we're your people. So anything that happens to us reflects poorly on you for your name's sake. Do something about this. Your name is on the line right now, God. And then there's finally this submissive acknowledgement that everything is in the hands of God. Verse 11 says this. May the groans of the prisoners come before you. With your strong arm, preserve those condemned to die. Pay back into the lapse of our neighbors seven times the contempt that they have hurled at you, Lord. Then we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, We'll praise you forever from generation to generation. We will proclaim your praise. It sounds a lot like if you get me out of this situation, I'll start going to church again. <laughs> that was free. That's not even in my notes right there. We're going to leave that where it is. The psalm ends with a final proclamation of faith and praise. Now, what I want you to see is this is just one. I had like probably 10 different psalms. I was like, am I going to do this one? I even told Katie, who does our graphics, I said, Katie, do Psalm 13. I'm doing Psalm 13. And then towards Thursday, the beginning of Friday, I'm like, I'm going to have to change it. Don't hate me for this. Psalm 79 is the psalm that we're going with. But I want you to see where God's people go, uh, psalm, psalm after psalm after psalm after psalm, is, is, is where God's people go to God broken, understanding that they're at the end of their own means, clamoring for any angle. Like, if it was me, I'm sorry. Well, God, for your name's sake, can you do something? Can you see all the bad things that have happened? Like, you're just trying from every single angle possible. God, do something. And it also shouts from the rooftops, hear this, it shouts from the rooftops that the condition in which we exist is not acceptable. It's not just, it's not equitable, there is not human thriving in this. This is not right, God. And so we have this kind of two-armed engagement of, God, would you do something, move something. Also, this situation is not okay. Now, I have this commentary, this book about the Psalms, that talks about the Psalms' usage throughout multiple generations in history. And what's unique and interesting about this book is that it shows you, believe it or not, that certain psalms come in and out of fashion, in and out of style, from generation to generation, from placement, from placement, from people group to people group. And when there is a time of difficulty, psalms like this get embraced, they become popular, they get written into the songs that people are writing for worship. And in a season of peace and unity, psalms like this are quietly omitted from the liturgy. 
because I don't need those right now. The lectionary, the hymns, worship songs being written are no longer popular in, in, in the time of lament. They change in favor of psalms of peace, gratitude, and unity. And I think it's evidence for us that we all tend to get caught up in our cultural moment, right? We're, we're all a little bit short-sighted. Can we admit that today? No? <laughs> we're like, nah, nope, not doing that. And I imagine in the streets of Ukraine, some people might identify with the psalm we just read, the full force of that emotion. From the vantage point, though, of a middle-class white American male in the 21st century, there's a lot of modifiers in there, let me say them again, middle-class white American male in the 21st century with a relatively high level of peace and security, this psalm can be experienced secondhand at best. I'm having to put myself in the place of their shoes and try to understand, and I can easily get to a point, as I did along the way, of saying, ah, is this okay? Are, I don't, this is rough, man, that language. Like, Asaph, you're taking this a little too far. Can you tone this down? Can you be a little less dramatic about your situation? But it's because I have no proximity to the situation that he's walking in. And so, and so I want to kind of give a quick perspective shift. Is it possible that as a person of color in the same 21st century American context, that you may identify a little bit with Asaph too. How long, O oh Lord? How long must we wait to see the fullness of true equity and freedom? How long? And so reading the Psalms in general helps us to step outside of our cultural placement, our seasonal experiences, so that we can share in the experiences of others. And then and what we do is we need to take in the different Psalms and all of the seasons they walk us through. However, if you think you can critique the psalmist, acting like you're above, asking God to rain down fire from heaven on your enemies, it's because you've never been in the situation. None of us are above it. And I'm not justifying that. It's a season. It's a real life masks off moment before God. And if you can look at this and critique it, you can be sure that you're resting likely in a season of peace, sitting on a throne of resources, probably nestled in a snuggie of warm advantages, right? And so worse in that is what happens is we become numb. The potential in that context is to become numb to the reality of suffering that could be right outside your front door or on the streets around you. Now I want to put this another way. I'm just going to say the same thing just from a different angle. So if it sounds like I'm repeating myself, it's because I am, but I want to do it kind of in this way too. The Psalms remind us that God's people have felt all of the seasons, not just the one you're currently in. Rage, repentance, sorrow, disappointment, abundance, loss, victory. Did I miss any? Anyone have one you want to add to that? Confusion. I didn't hear it. What was it? Hopelessness. Joy. I did have that one in there. I don't know who said that. But here's the point. It's all in there. You leaf through these psalms, and it's all so often what we might consider as normal or proper style or content in our liturgy, in our worship, in our expressions is just a reflection of the cultural moment we happen to be in. And so we place emphasis on one over the other. It just reveals our hand. It shows the short-sightedness of our placement in history. And when we identify, sorry, but when, we, when you have identified with a lament, and I mean truly identified with it, you know what kind of balm for a weary soul a psalm of lament can be for you. Like, not just me, Asaph, David. You've thought those thoughts, you've felt those feelings, you've had that pain too. 
And on the part of those in a position of distress, I'm going to kind of go back and forth on this, but in distress, a song of lament, those crying out, lament becomes a development of a strategy in your theology that you are aware of your suffering because you are continuously confronted with it on a regular basis. You're more aware of the things that you don't have or the services that are not given access to you, the experience of more loss than majority cultures do. They are constantly aware that they are different. And so a psalm or a worship that arises out of this community often cries for deliverance and justice and change and asks God to make things right. One author, Soon Chan Ra, he's a powerful writer, um, wrote a book called Prophetic Lament, said this, lament recognizes the struggles of life and cries out for justice against existing injustices. The status quo is not to be celebrated. If tax rates favor the rich, they should be challenged. Redistribution of wealth would not be a catastrophe, but instead a blessing in contrast to the existing state of economic inequality. So in other words, lament is the language of suffering. Now, on the part of those in a position of power, wealth, or high position, when it is healthy, becomes thanksgiving, right? Because God doesn't want us living in this kind of uh, 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 deficit idea. He wants us to be in this state of provision and trusting God. So when it's healthy, it's like gratitude. It's thanksgiving because you know, I can't take it for granted. It can be taken from me at any point. It is just this sense of thank you, Jesus, when provision comes into play. But when it's not healthy, it centers a theology of celebration that's absolute and just bulldozes over everything else. It takes for granted the position, develops this theology of triumphalism, of entitlement instead of deliverance. They seek stability, sustainability. I don't want things to change. I want this to be durable. This world that works very much in favor of my agenda, keep it going, Jesus. Now, Walter Brueggemann, another theologian, agrees with this idea. He says, Christian communities arising from this do not want their lives changed because their lives are in a good place. Home prices and stocks should, be continued to rise, should continue to rise unabated while interest rates should remain low to borrow more money to feed a lifestyle to which we have become accustomed. All right, so they don't expect their faith to begin in a cry, but rather a celebration and the protection of the status quo praises the language of those in power. Now, not always, but you see the contrast that's taking place. Now, there needs to be a balance of praise and lament, right? In a healthy dose, kind of back and forth, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's joy is another very powerful weapon in this arsenal, and hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about it before um, we get to the end here. But I want you to hear this. One-third, one-third of the 150 psalms is lament, complaint, and protest. Interestingly, CCLI, which is the copyright publisher, um, that we pay to be able to play songs on Sunday morning, and they then distribute that money to the worship leaders who wrote them or the people that wrote them. Uh, the main one uh, inside of the contemporary worship music scene, uh, which is, by the way, an over and I just want to qualify this, an overwhelmingly white resource, by the way. A lot of gospel songs are not found on this, um, which means that we are likely singing songs and not, they are not getting paid for those songs. Again, that's an aside, not in my notes. Uh, but, but hear this. It, it, almost all of the songs in the top 100 they keep track of it, they publish it, and help us know, like, you can log in right now and find out what the top ones. Reflect themes of praise only. 
How great is our God, not a bad song. Great are you, Lord. We sang it this morning. That was coincidence. I didn't know we were going to sing it this morning. Living Hope, which is a song that we sing regularly. Most of them are songs of upbeat kind of happiness, things that we want to uh, affirm. And when you look at the top 100, less than five, less than five songs could be considered lament. So we have an imbalance. And it seems like the majority of, Christ, uh, uh, let me say, evan- white evangelical churches in America are either avoiding or have no occasion for lament. It becomes a lost art, and then it becomes a, a complete uh, disassociation with those who may have something to lament. Another quote by Walter Brueggemann says, any theological reflection that emerges from suffering can be minimized in the onslaught of triumphalism. Now think about how that works itself out. I cannot listen to it. I can overwhelm it with this idea of praise so that when someone says, hey, something's wrong, you can say, no, 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 it's just you, just one person. No, no, we're good. 99 of us are good. I don't have to listen to that voice. It just gets completely thrown out, minimized. You know who has a robust theology of lament? Deliverance, a history of taking Christ to God. Christians who hold a minority status in this context. So the historically black church and the rich heritage of spirituals. The Asian church has its own hymn books and it reflects more closely the one-third of the Psalms. Predominantly Latino churches, all of these have a much stronger understanding and balance of using both lament and praise. And so this liturgical imbalance of the worship in majority culture bears witness against us, revealing that our heart is not for those who have a theology of suffering or familiar with lament. And I'm telling you, for those who do, they can smell it. They can feel when that voice is not going to be heard. I want to quickly throw at you three things and end with this story today. It's, uh, uh, sorry, it's four things that I think lament helps us to accomplish. And it's going to go back and forth from both sides of this coin. Lament is righteous resistance because it develops, uh, sorry, it stops us, it resists for us developing a calloused or weary heart who doesn't care about others or cannot process our own grief. It's not just for those who are struggling. If you continually hear only victory, you stand at that and you can't process it because you don't think you can bring it to God. And so it's for your own heart. And that your heart of stone would be continually made into flesh. This is uh, in this business, in this justice stuff, I feel like we've, you have to have a, a, a backbone uh, to push against forces to the extent that I'm constantly asking God, would you not let me have a heart of stone? Please give me a heart of flesh, Lord. Because you can just get mad. Would you break my heart for the things that break yours, God? Instead, develop a sensitive heart that feels, has a visceral effect, and has a passionate response to that which breaks God's heart. Righteous resistance, this is the second one, resists a privileged heart, removed from the realities of pain, suffering, and sorrow that usually is had on behalf of someone else. You can ignore the problems. You don't have voice for it, but, the song, uh, but, but Paul tells us, he reminds us in Romans, you are to weep with those who are weeping. And so we're supposed to enter into other people's lament. It resists despair. When you bring a complaint against God, you go to God. So it draws you closer to him instead of away and given to despair. While you might think you can't say that to God, he actually invites us in all of these psalms to bring these complaints to God. And so you have a place to take it. And the last thing here for 
is a resistance against a triumphalist heart. This is the main thrust of that book I quoted earlier, Soon Chan Ra's Prophetic Lament. It lacks humility. A, a nation or a people that can kind of come together and lean on their exceptionalism, their triumphalist ideas of understanding themselves, that we always win, and when you don't, you have to keep pretending that you're always winning, even if you're not winning anymore. And so it lacks humility and refuses to acknowledge your own limitations, admitting your own failures, your own shortcomings, your own sins, your own weaknesses, your own acknowledgement of, catch this, your need for God at all. Because you can handle it. Even when you can't, you're going to keep telling yourself you can and just die on that sword. And God says, when I am weak, you, when you are weak, I am strong. We're supposed to go to God in our weakness. Instead of developing humility and hope in a God who is higher and able to do more than us, we begin to stop understanding and projecting our thoughts as God thoughts instead of understanding that he is above our thoughts. There is this idea of righteous resistance and the idea of lament being able to confront injustice that sometimes more than a critique of aggression, a critique of sadness can move the heart of those in power. And I'm going to tell you just this quick story. Um, during one of the more tumultuous political seasons, and you, you can just take your pick because there's been plenty of those, I had the privilege of um, being corrected by a student in my own college ministry. She was a, a Latina woman who is very angry about a few discrepancies that she was observing, one being that there was a certain political candidate who is uh, being passively or explicitly endorsed by evangelicals. I'm not naming names. I'll let you fill in some blanks. She had conversations with people uh, had, had some, uh, who didn't like what she had to say in that context of that church uh, that, that we were in. She went to some protests and held up some signs with some really, really sharp critique of this presidential candidate. And in the midst of it, she posted those things on her Twitter feed later on, along with a few expletives that put out what she believed was a devaluation of her and her family's humanity. She believed she was being attacked. So what happens later is uh, some elders in that church come to me and they say, hey, this is getting out of hand. I don't know if you saw it, but someone screenshotted her feed, sent it to me, so I felt like I should pass that to the senior pastor, and we've been talking about it at the elders' meetings. There's like eight reasons why that was the wrong way to handle that, by the way, if you didn't catch that. And they call me and say, hey, you're the pastor over. You have a relationship. Um, there was a discipleship relationship with my wife and her as well. Uh, she, she's in your ministry like can you kind of, can, can you tell her to stop using the F word on Twitter? And I thought, like, yeah, that sounds reasonable. Like, just, you know, say, I'm not going to say you can't say what your, what your, you know, your opinion on this or that matter, but maybe just, like, less cussing <laughs> going on inside of this. So I catch her after a service, say, hey, and she's, like, walking out. I'm walking out. Um, I, I also have a, a good relationship with, at that time, her boyfriend, now husband. And I said, Hey, uh, real quick, you know, like the stuff that you were posting the other day, like I get this, your opinion, you're, you're fully welcome to that. I'm not, I'm not saying it was right or wrong. What I am saying is, could you just like tone it down? Just stop using the effort so much. And so she kind of looks at me with a blank stare, says, okay, and walked away from me. Now, if you don't catch in there, that was not an actual agreement. 
One and a half to two months later, she calls me and said, I've been really mad at you for what happened. And I love you too much to walk away from this, and I think you might be a little different than the powers that be in this organization, so I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. I'm inviting myself over with my boyfriend to your and your wife's house for dinner. After you all put the kids to bed, I am going to confront you for what you said to me, and I'm going to ask you not to speak until I'm completely finished, and then we can discuss what happened. Okay. So we've got enough, like that kind of low context um, communication doesn't bother me. That's kind of how I grew up, like directness is okay. So it's like not super offensive, but you know, like there's a forceful nature to this moment. She's there, her boyfriend's there. He doesn't talk much, rightfully so. She had more to say in this moment. And when she began to speak, this is what she says. Like, Eric, everyone has a line. And she began to kind of use this illustration. If someone called your wife a name on the street, what would you do about it? Like, would you punch him? Like, well, I don't, like, I don't know what well, they said this word, and she used a more aggressive word, like, well, use the B word. I mean, oh, it's kind of getting weirder, right? What if she pushed, your, what if someone came up and pushed your wife? Would you do something? I'm like, yeah, I probably would step in the middle. What if someone come, came up and just slapped your wife on the street? Is it possible you could become violent? Like, yeah, of course, I could possibly become violent in that situation, right? Everyone has a line. And what I want you to know is that when I see the things coming out of this administration, they have crossed my line. And I don't expect you to understand that. But in the end, you don't experience what I experience. You don't know what it's like to be a Latino woman going to church in an all-white space every single Sunday. You don't know what it's like to hear how people talk about me and about my family as if they can just be deported at any single moment that someone crosses the line. You don't know what it's like to be told all the time that you need to speak American, whatever that is, every time I open my mouth and talk Spanish in Spanish to someone else. You don't know what it's like to passively sit in a church where someone is endorsing either directly or indirectly a candidate who is calling my family a rapist and a killer. If you believe that a line has not been crossed, you have not experienced that, but I think a line was crossed, and I think it deserves a few F words. And I just kind of sat back in that. I didn't talk even though there was, a, like, I wanted to push back, I wanted to get defensive, I want to say, no, but this and that thing, like, you haven't thought about, could you have done, you know, all of these different things, and what I needed to realize now, and I think maybe even only this week, I caught, her Twitter feed was her platform for lament. She had been hurt, endangered even, and there was a place for her to put it out there. It was an honest outpouring of anger, fear, sadness, pressure. She felt that all of the pressure that she felt as a Latino woman in a racist culture gaining more power to increase that pressure, and I told her she had to tame it. I told her, no, 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 can you just like not use this word? Hey, can you follow my rules? Can you just follow the rules I've arranged for you? Can you live inside of those things as you speak about the problems that are going on? And I was taking my positions and perspectives, saying just a little less loud, a little less sharp. Let me fence you in here. Let me, let me put some parameters. Can you, moralizing this situation then projecting it onto her lived experience, of which I knew nothing. I told her she was being too sharp, too loud, without listening to a word her voice had to say. And you can sit and be like, I mean, I heard it. All the elders had all the reasons. Like, well, she shouldn't have used social media. I mean, well, it was her only platform. 
I mean, and by the way, her platform's going toe-to-toe with a Sunday sermon that hundreds of people are, are tuning into every week. And that, that, that platform refused to give her voice. Well, maybe she could have gone about it a better way, right? And I thought the same thing, right? Like, I, I remembered that another woman, though, <laughs> also a Latina woman who had the same exact critiques, worded them so eloquently, posted them in a long three paragraphs on her social media feed. You know how many elders knew that that post ever happened? None. Because they were busy talking about the girl who said the F word. So I just look at them and I'm like, you tell me who won. Who actually, whose lament, whose critique actually worked in this situation to get the opinion out. So go home and say like, well, Eric just said I can just throw the F-bomb around on Facebook and like, (laughs) I mean, that's not what I'm saying. Eventually the lamentation of that woman reached me, a leader, and it is in heavy part why we are here and what we do here. This was a shifting moment in my life that changed me forever. She doesn't even fully know the extent of that shift. But because she loved me enough to confront me, something changed in me. And as a powerful voice in that organization, I tried to silence her. I leaned into the numbing layers of the institutional rules, the sense of proper conduct, right? It took a little push, but it got through eventually, and it broke my heart. And I was moved. And if my heart had been more in tune with the sound of lament, maybe I would have recognized it immediately. Maybe I would have understood. And maybe even some of that from my background is what overlapped with hers because we actually had all kinds of good conversations about how similar some of her experiences were with the way that I grew up. But there's this pressure of distress that I added onto her life as opposed to giving her a platform for her voice to be heard. And so this is what I'm saying. Like, you, you don't just get a free-for-all, go off the hinges and start cussing left and right at aunt or uncle, whoever, on Facebook. What I'm saying is that perhaps we need to listen better. Maybe we need to ask more questions. Maybe we need to tune in. Maybe we need to be more accustomed to lament that we know when it happens and recognize it when we hear it instead of fighting against it or seeing or being offended by it too quickly. We need to not minimize the pain of marginalized voices but give people permission to pour out their complaints and be heard. Don't assume we know what's best or better than the person walking through this season. And my ultimate thrust at the end of today is be moved. Be moved by lament. Don't be so hardened in your heart that you don't hear the cries of others when they're hurting. This is a kind of numbness that attempts to minimize it. The reality of the pain tries to ignore it and act like it's not there. Hear the lamentations and weep for those who weep. I want you not to just be moved by it, but be moved into it. Join in with those who are lamenting. If, it's, uh, 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 if things are, are that easy, uh, maybe, uh, let me say this, uh, let me word it this way. If lament is easy for you, then it's possible you have a skill set that needs to be taught for those of which the skill of lament has been lost. And if you haven't heard it yet, feel permission to take your mask off and be real before God. There are no perfect people. And the ones who look like they are are just lying. Be moved by lament and into lament. And then secondly, or thirdly, move others with lament. It is a tool at our disposal 
believe and step out in faith that this kind of powerful kingdom way to operate is effective, that it can move people in ways. And I can tell you from experience, I tried to push off this lament left, right, all around, and eventually she struck at the heart of what was going on in this organization, and I had to reevaluate everything that was going on. Could it backfire? 100%. But even if they don't, then I want you to rest in knowing that you can move God with your laments. He is a God who hears your cries even when people don't. He is a God who destroys and brings to desolation pharaohs when God's cry and the people go up over and over, let my people go, let my people go, let my people go. God eventually hears that cry and intercedes on behalf of what's going on. And so let's end with this. May we be moved and stirred and resist the temptation to go numb or to hold it in, but to go before God, not to pretend that we're not hurting, but to ask him to intervene, not to protect status quos, but hear the voices of those who are hurting all around us. And may our lamentations, our sorrows, our complaints, our critiques move others and the heart of God into establishing the kingdom of God in Indianapolis as it is in heaven. Would you pray with me? Father, this is a lost art for some of us, so God, teach us how to lament. God, this is a, and it's a Debbie Downer to come in with this topic, God, after such a joyous time and a week of celebration, a month of celebration, ending the way we did but it's still a tool in our arsenal that needs to be re-embraced. And for those who are well acquainted with lament, Lord, would you allow them to, be, to become a voice, a teacher? Would you allow those who haven't to come under submission to them and to hear that voice and to know something's not right, something needs to be given in this? And that something powerful Like what happens when Jesus comes over that hill and he weeps for Israel because he is disappointed that they still haven't seen him as God yet. And so God, with one eye on our moment today, but one eye looking forward to Easter in the life of Jesus, God, teach us what other tools we may be missing. Teach us what ways in which we have possibly participated in wrongdoing. Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. In the name of Jesus Christ, all God's people said, amen. Amen.